From LibertyCast Studios and the Defenders of Capitalism Project, here's another capital idea from your host, Mike Williams. Mike Williams here, defender and champion of laissez-faire capitalism. All right, welcome back to Michael Williams with the Defenders of Capitalism Project and my capital idea. We're here to talk about capitalism, individual rights, the only system congruent with human nature, the only system that's actually moral. Um, People don't always see it as a moral system, don't even understand it, that it's a much wider context than just business, supply and demand, commerce. Capitalism is about protecting individual rights, and we're going to talk about uh, a specific application today. We're going to talk about uh, the whole history of unions, not history necessarily. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about the background there, but uh, there was a recent article um, in the New York Times that I read that I thought was worth talking about. It's, it's, it's about a resurgence of unions, and but before we jump into that, I want to make sure I acknowledge the fact that I've got Mitch here in the studio with me. Mitch Whitus, my co-host. Say hello, Mitch. Hey, good to be here, Mike. So um, what have you been up to? Well, lots of hikes, trying to get in nature before winter comes, which will be here before you know it. Winter is coming. Yeah, winter is right. coming, as they say. That's right. I was just up in a, up in a Montana for a wedding this past weekend, and uh, it looked like winter was a long ways off. It was hot up there. Was it really? Yeah, it really Beautiful, was. I bet, though. It's gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. So let's jump into this. Many of our listeners may be surprised to know that I read the New York Times on a fairly regular basis. Um, And this article was about, it was in the Times, it was about um, the resurgence of unions, unionization making a comeback, as I say. And I thought we'd uh, kind of flesh that out a little bit. In fact, the title of the article was called Why Union Drives Are Succeeding. And many people have probably read about this. You know, you've, you've seen where some fairly you know, modern, hip, new companies, not that hip or new anymore, but more from the newer economy, you know, not necessarily industrialization or car manufacturers or steel or whatever it might be. We're talking about Amazon and Starbucks and places like that that are starting to become unionized. And the whole article is about how that's occurring right now. And I thought it'd be worthwhile for us to t- touch on that. Um, how does that relate to capitalism? How does that rate relate to as I say, individual rights and the proper role of government. The article started off with kind of profiling a woman uh, who successfully started the unions at a Starbucks in Buffalo, and and that's kind of taken over now. There's a lot of a lot of people who are working for Starbucks throughout the country who are saying, "Okay, you did that in Buffalo, and show us how. Show us how we start a union." And and spent some time highlighting her, quote, radical politics and, and sort of harkened back to the days of the Depression. Um, and so do you have any thoughts on unions, Mitch? I do. <laughs> I, I First of all, I want to say, I know this relates to capitalism. It also relates to my Facebook feed because almost every day now that I log on, I am getting those promotions in my feed that come up the advertisements and one of them is about a starbucks in colorado that's unionizing really and the promotion of course is for me to click on it and join the you know the group join the cause join the cause um and if they knew are they they actually uh um doing that to try to 
persuade the public as well and, and buying Facebook ads? I mean, this is not a Starbucks ad. This is the union. No, no, this is not a Starbucks ad. This is the whatever organization is helping drive the union effort is putting these advertisements out. So I'm assuming doing some sort of public relations campaign. If they knew anything about me, they wouldn't have spent the 20 cents to try to reach out to me or however much it costs. But So you're very anti-union? Is that what you're saying? I, uh, I am. Here's my my thinking. I am... I think government should have a union neutral approach, which means, in my opinion, that if people working together want to get together and, uh, I guess, collectively, for lack of a better word, try to negotiate, that is their right as free citizens to be able to do so. I believe it's also the right of business owners to fire whom they please or to say, absolutely, we'll increase wages or whatever your demands are. I don't think government has a role in trying to, you know, we have like the uh, union labor, I'm forgetting the name now, union national, labor. National Labor Relations it's Board. Not, yes, thank you. I don't think that's government's role at all. But I think if people in the private sector, I think the public sector is a bit of a different story. Absolutely, yeah. But we'll in, the, in the private sector, I think if people of their own volition, want to get together and try to negotiate together. I do think that's their right. Absolutely. And and, and that's, I think you kind of cut to the chase. Uh, you know, you covered most of the bullets that I wanted to actually cover in our, our episode today. Um, and we'll dive deeper into teach one of those, those ideas. I mean, first of all, people should realize that unions, in a sense, are a product of capitalism. And in one sense, a good product of capitalism. I mean, Capitalism is about each individual having a right to their own life, their liberty, their pursuit of happiness, as stated in the Declaration. Um, but more, more precisely, it's about their ability to run their own life, to to do what they want with their own life, because it because they only got one of them, and and they that's what freedom means. Um, and so people do have a freedom to associate with others, they the freedom to assemble. Uh, but as you said, businesses have a right to fire them as well. Um, but it's interesting how this kind of ebbs and flows over time. Uh, I, I mentioned that it was a product of capitalism in a sense. I mean, you didn't have uh, prior to the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, you didn't have large groups, groups of people who were working for someone say, hey, let's get together and demand more because they were slaves, basically, or serfs. or In some way or another, they had no real ability to make changes. They couldn't go somewhere else. They might have been, you know, they, they maybe could have some mobility, but in most cases throughout human history, uh, people have didn't have the ability or freedom to organize in that way. And there was no wealth to haggle over anyway. That's right. Anyway. That's right. There wasn't any there wasn't <laughs> any real wealth in, uh, to 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 demand better working conditions or to demand higher wages, you know, that everyone was scraping by in the first place. There were a few tiny few elites who themselves weren't really that well off relative to today and the middle class today. So it's point one is that the idea of collective bargaining is a result of wealth production in the first place. Uh, but it's interesting how our times right now, because for a while unions were on the wane. They were kind of, they were uh, going uh, the way of, uh, I mean, they, 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 there were much fewer people who were even interested in, in forming or joining a union. And we'll talk a little bit about that history. But back to this article. The, I don't know if you're familiar with this term salting. I'm not, no. So salting, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's kind of like uh, you know, seasoning, like the salt. But what they, 
what it is is people who are trying to form unions would pay someone to try to get a job at a place they wanted to get unionized. So they would. There's this outside organization who would want to have, you know, maybe a, a larger uh, uh, organization that's unionized in other areas, and now they want to pay someone specifically to get a job at a specific place to start a movement there. Infiltration. Infiltration. Yeah, to salt the the labor force with, or infiltrate them to to agitate to to, to try to say, hey, we're. <laughs> We're not being paid enough, or our working conditions sucked, or we should have longer, longer uh, vacations, or whatever the benefits they're trying to to get for the the larger collective. Um, and there are many people who believe that salting sh- itself should be illegal. I don't know that I believe that. I think that you know, if someone says, "I'm going to hire you to take a job," now it's under false pretenses. And and as you said, the employer should be able to just fire them on the spot if they find out your motivation isn't really to be productive here and earn a living here and to you know have a good trade between. Me, right. the employer, and you, the the worker. But your your whole objective is to cause problems for my labor force. Well, you're fired. Get lost. I mean, right. so both people should be able to have the right to do that. It's interesting, you know, going back to the article talking about how how this woman uh, specifically was hired that way. She didn't really want to work at Starbucks, but she was hired by an outside group to foment uh, and agitate for uh, for unionization at Starbucks. And um, again, it mentions multiple times her radical politics, and she's basically a Marxist. Um, and I don't know how many of our listeners are really familiar with Marxism. If they're listening to this podcast, they they know that we're advocating for the opposite. Marxism is the the view of uh, collectivism and the the whole idea of trying to take from the productive and and spread it around and and. Uh, you know, as you are productive, you need to be supportive of your fellow man. It's it's basically the opposite of capitalism. And again, she was raised this way. In fact, it reminds me, this is kind of a, a rabbit hole, and I want to keep us on track, but the, it's a rabbit hole. I saw a person recently who is um, a Prager University personality. I don't know if you're familiar with this person. Her name is Amala Edpunobi. I think that's how you said Edpunobi. Are you familiar with her? Uh, no, I'm not. I'd, I'd actually, if you can elaborate a little bit, Mike, because it sounds like she's got kind of an interesting story. She really does. Uh, I heard her give a speech. She's fairly young, but she gives her background is she was raised in a very leftist, collectivist, Marxist household. Uh, she didn't really know why, and she she found herself growing up to be in this household and advocating for all kinds of Marxist positions. She was a student organizer for the left, and her her mother in particular, she talks about, um, would coach her on how to agitate for these things. And then, and then she found herself not being able to answer certain questions once she went to college. You know, she couldn't really answer the questions that people were posing to her. And she she tells the story of, you know, kind of searching for truth herself, and that led her to actually have an about face in terms of her ideological viewpoint. And now she's as I said, a personality for Prager University, which I think has some real virtues and some real issues at times. Um, but she's now an advocate for freedom. She's now considered to be a you know conservative or, or someone who has conservative values, and a, and a she's certainly gone viral in terms of her social media. Um, but in listening to her speech, actually, in reading this article, I was kind of thinking like this person who. Uh, was agitating for a union at Starbucks. Sounds like she had a similar background. Um, who knows whether she had the, the same kind of thing? But she, you know, she 
wore Karl Marx sweatshirts at Oxford, Oxford University and has been a, you know, quote, leftist organizer all of her life. And again, she went to Starbucks with the purpose of, of starting a union. And now you have unions popping up in Starbucks. So why do we have this this happening now at this point in our history? And why in these uh, companies that, that, you know, are generally viewed to be not like, you know, conservative Koch brothers type of organizations. You know, you have Starbucks who's usually, usually considered to have, you know, very um, uh, progressive, I progressive would say. views about uh, benefits and um, environment and so forth. Why are we having this happen now? Was that a question for me? Because <laughs> I don't know. Me. Because I don't know the answer. I think it's, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm seeing it now more and more every day. But why is this happening right now? Well, I think uh, it goes back to uh, culture. I mean, we have, in one sense, the worst union out there are the education unions. And most Americans go through public schools. And public schools are controlled by the education unions and are controlled by the progressive education movement. Even, you know, middle of the road or nonpartisan, nonpolitical teachers are influenced by uh, cultural Marxism. And so there's this letting Marx off the hook uh, for so many people, uh, including our educators, and being sympathetic to the, quote, uh, workers' paradise or advocating for more, you know, quote, rights for workers and against, quote, capital. And the history of it is, you know, the, we have, again, this did happen because of capitalism, this being the development of unions. Um, and there were, I think, a rational justification for people who were saying we want to advocate for better working conditions or higher wages. Now, again, they overplayed their hand in the sense that they, they started advocating for the government use of force to uh, help their position with employers. And that's the problem. And now we're at the point where we have so much intrusion in government, for, by government into big business um, that you really don't have you know, the freedom for uh, businesses to operate the way they, they want to and need to. And the history of it was that we developed the, um, the regula- welfare regulatory state, the administrative state, and included in that administrative state is the, the, the agency that you mentioned before, the National Labor Relations Board, which has a great deal of influence, not even influence, but power in terms of telling employers how they have to operate, how they have to deal with uh, collective bargaining issues. That in and of itself is a whole different topic. Uh, the administrative state, the, you know, the deep state, if you will, the agencies that have no real accountability to the, the political process um, is one of the major problems. And we're see- starting to see some, some movement on the part of our Supreme Court to actually rein that in and, and say that Congress itself needs to be accountable. Uh, they can't just delegate things to, to all these uh, uh, bureaucratic agencies like, like the National Rela- Labor Relations Board. Well, and you know, you're talking about Marxism and things like that. I, I think maybe some moderate people out there would say, well, you know, they, we had unions at the big three automakers, you know, in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, that was just about making sure people got higher wages. And, and what's wrong with people trying to get higher wages? 
Yeah, there's nothing wrong with people wanting to get higher wages, um, and that's why you have a marketplace where they can uh, they can if they need to bargain collectively, but they can't use the force of government to force big business into concessions. And and this is partly why we saw the the labor movements go down in in uh, membership because they overplayed their hand. I mean, you, you saw. Um, Especially, like you said, in the in the uh, the big three automakers, they become so much less competitive, and they get their clocks cleaned by the Japanese and the Germans. Yeah, uh, because you had people who were not as productive as they were being paid. Um, they were overpaid uh, because of all the extreme uh, successes, in a sense, that the unions wrought against the big three automakers and other other major manufacturers and industrial giants throughout the U.S. Um, so those companies became much less competitive. And we saw this in the airlines as well. Uh, we've seen it in so many industries where the unions overplay their hand with the force of government. Um, and you know, that's not a good relationship. That's not a win-win relationship. It's not sustainable long-term if you have people who are being paid more than they're actually producing. That company is going to suffer and actually uh, in a competitive global marketplace. And this is one of the major reasons why we saw union membership go down. Global competition, deregulation um, allowed for companies that were more nimble and could compete more effectively to take market share. Now, obviously, that also happened because of the sort of cultural shift toward uh, smarter manufacturing. You didn't need to have necessarily as many people. When you shift to more of an information economy, the union membership actually waned in that case as well. Um, and, and, and people became less interested in actually becoming members of a union. The prestige of being a, a union member uh, changed. Uh, people began to look down on, you know, oh, you're, you're someone who, who needs to have, you know, the collective bargaining work for you. But, but again, we want to emphasize that Collective bargaining in and of itself is not bad. It's 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 a good thing. It's a good it's a market force in a sense when you have uh, individuals who can come together and say, well, we're going to negotiate with this organization uh, by banding together. Uh, again, as long as neither side is able to use force on the other one. Um, now, people will sometimes m- make the mistake of saying, well, the employer has the jobs, they have the power, they have all the power, and they're, they're exercising force by saying you can fire them, fire the workers. Uh, but that's a different, entirely different kind of force. Uh, it's an entirely different kind of power, I should say. It's not even, it's improper to call it force. The power we're talking about is economic power versus the power of a political power or the power of the gun or the power of physical force, the power of physical force to get people to do something. Compulsion. Compulsion or coercion, yeah. So um, I just thought it was an interesting article. And, I, and again, my point would be that, um, and, and this was made explicitly in another article I read. And now this is from the Jacobin, which is a, you know, a socialist or, organization, socialist uh, periodical. And uh, the, the article is called Why Unions Are Good But Not Good Enough. And the whole point of this article was to say they're not militant enough. They're not using enough force. And that is sort of the, the flavor of the moment right now of our culture is that more and more people are becoming used to authoritarianism or the use of coercion to get their way rather than the use of a market or persuasion. 
Um, and that's a bad trend. Um, hopefully we'll continue to see the people who are advocates for freedom become more, have more sophisticated intellectual arguments against that kind of use of force. Well, first, Mike, you brought up airlines a little while ago. I think we should have a single episode devoted wholly to airlines because airlines are such a fascinating industry for all the wrong reasons. In well, the when you say they're a fascinating industry for the wrong reasons, what do you mean by that? Well, I think they've been abused by regulation, bizarre regulation in the past. They've been historically unprofitable. They receive lots of government bailouts, yet most airlines still can't seem to really make a long-term profit. It's a tough, tough business, and, and I, I've looked at it from an investment standpoint. I mean, the, and many people who are, uh, who are investors know this fact. If you take, since the Wright brothers, the, the commercialization of airlines has never been a profitable, in aggregate, never been a profitable enterprise. I mean, if you take all the air, airlines that have gone out of business, and, and it's for a lot of the reasons you said, it's a tough, tough business. I mean, you, you have... First of all, like you said, the the kind of regulations that they go through and the and the kind of uh, restriction in terms of their ability to to operate. But then you have the weather, you have unions, you have massive capital investments that need to be made. So there's a lot that has to go right for a for an airline to make money. Um, but it's it it also is sort of a, a a has been seen as a glamour business. You know, people like the idea of traveling and. And traveling in jets and so forth. Um, so a lot of a lot of times people will want to invest well, there. Clearly, those people have never flown on Frontier <laughs> That's Airlines. That's true, Frontier. <laughs> or Spirit. Well, and, and the thing is, those those airlines really do serve a purpose. I mean. Um, again, you're right. We, we, we're, that's a rabbit hole. We, we ought to go down and just do purely an episode on capitalism as it applies to the airline industry. Uh, I do want to get back to this whole unionization thing. Again, nothing is inherently wrong with, in my view, in, in, with collective bargaining. You have the right to, to associate an assembly. It's no, it's no violation of a right of someone's rights when people want to bargain collectively. But again, you can't, you can't prevent them from, uh, prevent the, the employer themselves from, uh, from making their own decisions with their own property. It's a massive problem, though, when you have, again, government being the instrument of force, allowing their employees, the employers that are uh, the, the people who, who operate under a system of force, when they're a- allowed to, to uh, collectively bargain, um, that's where you have real poison. And, and I mean, even, even if you go back to Roosevelt, FDR, he knew that that was wrong because you had, you had both the, the employer, meaning the, the state agency or whatever, the government agency, and the workers themselves being essentially on the same side with no one representing the taxpayer. And that's part of why we've had such a growth in the, in the size and scope of all these uh, bureaucratic agencies because they have that kind of power. And, and that's, a, that's a major problem we have right now in our culture and our society. And it will, take, it will take a philosophical moral revolution to really undo that and, and to make people, make Americans realize that that's, that's uh, against the idea of freedom and, and ultimately is destructive of human life, human capital and human lives. So circling back now, Mike, to what we see with Amazon and Starbucks and and other companies where this union drive is growing. You know, I think about speaking with some of my friends and I think they would probably say, you know, they're not always a fan of what unions do, but we hear in the news so much about how the gap between the wealthy and the 
and everybody else in the country has grown. So, you know, maybe at the very least, this will increase wages, get everybody, as Elizabeth Warren likes to say, growing together again. So maybe it's a positive thing, right? The positive thing of this resurgence of unions at these at these companies, right, right. Well, it could be. I think it depends um, if they're if they're using the the force of the state to extract unearned concessions from private property owners, businesses. Which, let's be honest, that is what's going to happen. Probably then that's a very very bad thing, and and that's the problem. Is that right now we have the state involved in so many parts of our lives, so many businesses. There's no such thing as a free market right now. And that's one of the biggest mistakes people who are, you know, oftentimes uh, believe they're pro-business or pro-freedom or pro-capitalism don't realize is that we don't have that. We have a very mixed economy. And that mixture is one of of two elements, basically. The the element of the the, the freedom of the individual and the innovation and entrepreneurship that goes on in business uh, when you have private ownership of property and then the use of force by the state. It's capitalist when a Republican is in office and socialist when a Democrat's in office, right? <laughs> That's what they say. <laughs> Unfortunately, there, there's no real major distinction between the two parties as far as that goes. They're authoritarians on both sides and they're both for controlling our behavior, depending upon which realm of our lives they want to control and which moment they want to control it. Maybe this isn't obvious to most people, but it's obvious to me that uh, there is no real principle difference. They're, they're, they don't have principles, first of all. There's no, there's no real platform or philosophical tenet either party will really fight for other than the accumulation of more power for themselves. And, and that's where you get you know, the team, the tribalism, uh, people who say, well, you, you know, it is the, it's the Democrats who are really for us or it's really the Republicans who are for us or for our freedoms. Uh, neither party is for freedom. And that's where it gets you know, really important to define your terms, including the term of capitalism and what rights mean. That's crucial. And we've done that on this podcast. That's what we try to do. That's what we're here for. And so my big thing I'd want people to take away from this is that, again, uh, unions are a product of of capitalism, a product of empowering workers to be able to collectively bargain as long as it's done on a voluntary basis and not coerced by by the state. And Mike, just out of curiosity, do you think that this growing union movement that we're seeing is going to continue to increase in the short term? I think it will continue to increase because we have that kind of momentum. And that's why um, more often than not, I believe that we should be looking at root causes and one of the major root causes right now of this cultural shift toward more collectivism, uh, collectivism by use of force or unionization by use of force or uh, you know, the state being intrusive in our lives is because we have at root a, an educational system that has in effect brainwashed people on that being the positive moral ideal. Um, and... So people have not even been exposed to the idea of freedom, truly freedom, what it means to be a free citizen. And that's why the, the uphill battle is really at the educational level. And that's, again, what we're trying to do is educate people about the ideal of capitalism and the arguments for it. Well, there we go. I know a little bit more about unions now. So thank you, Mike. <laughs> Thanks for being here, Mitch. Thanks for contributing. Thanks for asking me good questions. 
Hopefully everyone will continue to listen to our podcast, share it, go to our website. We've got some, actually we've got some good uh, op-eds and uh, editorials and uh, uh, a number of different uh, pieces that have been put up on, on the Defenders of Capitalism website, some good material. And if you're interested in hearing more, feel free to reach out to us and make suggestions on topics you'd like to hear in the future. Thanks for listening. 